Ashley Shannon, and I'm here with my co-host, Carrie McAvoy, and you're listening to the How to Publish Your Books podcast, where we're helping writers become authors. I'm really excited because today we're going to talk about making or writing realistic dialogue. Um, and so, yeah. Hi, Carrie. Hey, guys. So good to see you guys. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about dialogue. That's a passion of mine. I love good dialogue. It, yeah, but but we're going to start with something that we're using or doing that has helped our writing journey a little, make it a little easier. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so what have you been using lately or reading or discovering that has been making your writing journey easier? So I um, have started doing a lot of vertical videos as a way to build author platform. And, and it's been interesting because it's working. I have a Beacon link, which is sort of like a link tree. It's a, it's a bio link. And one of the things that Beacons allows me to do is to watch analytics. So I get to see how many people are actually coming and clicking on the links and then how many people actually do something with the links. So I'm getting to see the conversion. Anyway, so I'm really enjoying vertical videos. But, and I often make it inside a TikTok and then transfer them over to Reels and Instagram, or I put them into uh, Spotlight in Snapchat. But one of the things that's really hard is that you have to, you don't get custom um, photos and you often can't change your background or it really is an inflexible program in the sense of it doesn't do everything that you want. So what I've been doing is I've been screenshotting my TikToks before I get very far and then I've been uploading them into a new app called InShot, I-N-S-H-O-T app. And I think it's a free app. And then it allows me to uh, reformat it, redesign or shape it for Instagram, which is a four five, um, instead of nine sixteen, it's four five. So it gets me, lets me put a different canvas on it. So I, it fits the screen better. It also allows me to put text that's, you know, if like I want to intro it, like a, you can do that on TikTok, but you don't have all these like colors and fonts and all these varieties. So it allows me to change the colors of the fonts to a whatever I want, different kind of fonts if I want to use it. It just gives me a lot of flexibility. And the thing that I really like is at the end, I can create this little round sticker that says, please like and follow me for more. So I can, oh, cool. yeah, I can put a little hook in that pointed out without having just like be words, which is all I would be able to do with TikTok. So yeah, it's then, and then if I keep it in there, I can keep changing it, reformatting it so it fits each custom site. So that if I want something to look a little different for Snapchat, I can. If I want something to look a little different for Instagram, because I often put a title on Instagram, I can, you know, those types of things. So I've really been enjoying it a lot. Again, it's called, I don't, it's not, I don't have any affiliate links with it, but it's called InShot. That's very cool. Yeah. Just to let you guys know, anything that we're suggesting, we're really just suggesting because it works and we use it. Um, none of these companies pay us. <laughs> no. Unfortunately. It would be nice, but no, I just, have, I, I've tried another one called Prequel. Prequel allows you to actually, you can't tape, you can't, so InShot has to have a finished product. You can stitch clips together and create a new one. And you can even put tw transitions in it. So it's really a pared down like iMovies or mm -hmm. um, Premium Pro or whatever. It's really a pared down, but it's fast and it's formatted specifically for video, vertical videos. It's not formatted for the landscape type. So um, maybe it is, I just don't do that. But anyway, I'm, what I'm saying is it's specifically for social media, which is what I really like. Um, <clears throat> okay, so this week, um, I'm going to share with you guys, it's not something new to me. It's actually something that I've used for 
maybe three or four years. Um, but you know, this past week I wrote something like 15,000 words on my memoir and really just kind of got a lot done plus some blog posts and stuff like that. So, um, I thought I would share my little, my little helper (laughs) when it comes to being a nerdy writer. Um, so there's this website called for the words. Um, and if you've followed me for a long time, you guys know that I am a video game advocate. I love playing video games. So what For the Words does is it gamifies writing. Um, You get to go on these little quests and you have to write so many words and an allotted amount of time to defeat monsters. Um, I'm a big um, MMORPG, which is a massive multiplayer or massive multi on player online role-playing game. That's what it is. (laughs) And um, it kind of reminds me of that. And so if you are just kind of stuck or looking to make your writing routine a little bit more fun, I would definitely suggest that you check out For the Words. Um, And if you want any information, you can send us a message. And um, I do know that like, if I send people to them, then I get like special gear. So if you want to help a girl out, (laughs) I am such a nerd. Like you have no idea. Every they do so they do like special events and stuff for like NaNoWriMo they're a NaNoWriMo sponsor and um but they do like events for Valentine's Day and all these different things and um every like for like every event I'm like I'm gonna go get all the clothes and then my character gets a new look and like oh that's funny (laughs) I'm such a nerd you create a character online so you have an avatar online and then you're killing monsters by how fast you're writing Mm -hmm. right okay okay and when you kill like you'll get quests and it'll be like okay go kill these four monsters and then you do that and then you get stuff oh so it's like instant rewards which is why you know video games are so addicting to people is because you get like instantaneous rewards you feel like you're doing something right and this way you actually are doing something you're furthering your work in progress but you still get to kill stuff Right, right, right. That's really cool. I, I know that you've, you've talked about it a lot. And I, I know because I think it was, was it Monday that you did 9,000 words? You did a ridiculous yeah. amount of words, which I personally like, like, because I cannot, I cannot do that kind of volume. But, but she literally I, messaged me and was like, I hate you. I know. I, mean, I did do that. Yeah. Because you put it somewhere. I just did 9,000 words. Like, oh, yeah. And I really don't like you. But anyway. No, but you know, it's, it's interesting to use the competitive spirit to promote, you know, to encourage you to do stuff. And I have done, um, speed, what's that called with you? Writing sprints, writing sprints with you. And even that, which is, I know this is a personal one-on-one with yourself, but even with writing sprints, it's amazing how much you can get done really fast and how fast the time goes. I mean, it's like painless. So Mm -hmm. I agree with you, actually. I think anybody who's not ever tried this and is struggling to get much done, much content done, do one of these things like writing sprints or this, this, what, what's this called? Words for for the words. For the words, for the words. So it's like the number four and then the words.com. But it is, I find myself like, I mean, doing writing sprints with other people makes me competitive, Mm -hmm. but doing writing sprints with myself just to be like, 15 minutes. Okay. I wrote a hundred words. Okay. I'm going to do another 15 minutes. I'm going to write more than a hundred words. And a lot of people think when you're writing fast like that, or you're like pushing yourself that it's like bad content. And I don't think that's true. I just think it takes a little bit of practice to get your brain 
working that way. And once your brain works that way, like, I, I don't think slow or fast, I think you are able to write well. Right. Well, so. because one of the bad habits a lot of us get into is we start to write and edit. And it's really, right. you don't want to be doing that because you're, first of all, your edits still are not going to be the kind of quality edits you're going to do later. So you're right. wasting time. And second, you just need to get the content down, then you can cut, do all the work on it. So I love these, these, these mechanisms, these strategies are really good at cutting that out, some bad behaviors out of us. And you're right, it is a brick type of brain training too, probably. I think it's super cool. Yeah, I used to do that in college. Um, in college, I wrote fan fiction. Um, <laughs> and no, I will not tell you for what fandom, but- um, <laughs> it's uh, No, it's not because it's that illicit, it's because she doesn't want you to know. <laughs> Right, like it was a real nerdy. Okay, so um, I know, I know, I know. I think I know what it is, but anyway. So um, I was co-writing a story with somebody, and she would write a chapter, and I would write a chapter, and we were trying to post a chapter like every day. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that I would have like two days to write a chapter, and I was a creative writing major at the time. Um. Or maybe, maybe I was still English education, but either way, I was in a creative writing class and, you know, my teacher was telling me the same thing. You write your first draft, you edit your second one. Like you don't edit while you're writing. And so they had this website. I don't even know if it's still around, but it was called Write or Die. And you just had to keep writing. And if you stopped and paused for too long, it started deleting what you wrote. <laughs> and so I used that in college to train myself. That's like, you don't edit. And I don't to this day, like blog posts, anything, emails, whatever. I write it all in for the words and I don't edit it until it's done um, because I got to kill the monster. Yeah. So you like you have a time frame. And so it really just helps keep me from doing that whole back and forth editing thing, which like you said, is just a waste of time honestly, because yeah. you're I, not doing no, good cohesive edits at that point. No, you're not because I'm doing edits right now for real. And I can, and I did edits the before. So I like, oh crap, this is all shit. So no, it's not worth the time. It's not, you're still, you're still going to cut to give you an example out of my, well, I can share with the next time about how much I've done on this thing. But anyway. But oh yeah. yeah. Well, we can go into that. So the second part of our new format is where are you in your writing? Kind of like, wait, did you ever watch like a uh, show where in the world is carbon San Diego? No, no. <laughs> oh my God. I love that show. It was on like PBS or something. I'm really showing my age right now. Anyways, <laughs> Carrie, how was your writing this week? Well, yeah, it's been a hard week. You know, I'm coming down to the last, so I'm about 62,000 words in out of an 85,000 word document. So I'm coming down to the last 25,000 words and I'm tired. It, I've been at this for solid two and a half, almost three months. And it's, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And I know that the edits typically take three to six months. That's kind of the average timeline for most writers. So, so, but, so yeah, but it's a slog, you know, but so, but that's good. I mean, I'm doing it and thus far. So to give you a sense of the scope of how much I've cut from this book, I started out with 115,000 word document. I've cut 30,000 words out. Now I know people are like, oh, doesn't that hurt? No, because it's shit. I mean, it's stuff that doesn't move the story forward. It's too many sticky words. It's all this crap that's just not good writing. So it's, that's what makes this so slow is because you have to take a sentence and really look at it and relook at it and look at it again and make sure it works and isn't the right place. And I mean, there's all this stuff that goes to it. So that's where I'm at. I'm almost done. I bet you next week I will be looking at the tail end, the fumes of it. The other thing I did this week and I'm so excited about is that I have my final 
uh, cover. My book cover is finished. And I even That's have exciting. A 3D, yeah, I even have a 3D version of it too. She, she sent it over to me so I can start putting that up in various places. It looks really great. I'm super happy with it. Um, so that's done. And, and I've got a landing page up and I already have three pre-orders. Yeah, hey, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. exciting. Um, yeah, I've never understood that whole, like, um, I have to cut my work because this hurts my feelings or whatever. I'm like, oh, I don't either. I don't get it. I think that's just because I look at writing as a business way more than a creative art form. Yes, I am a creative person and I feel creative when I'm writing, but like it's a business to me and you cut the fat from your business if you want to make money, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, But this, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, I think I'm kind of like, no, I'm not an artist when it comes to writer writing style. I'm a spiller storyteller. But, mm-hmm. but when I, when I, I took one time drawing, uh, charcoal drawing, and the, the artist said, every, when you put multiple lines on the paper and one of them will be the right line mm-hmm. and you'll get rid of the rest of the lines. That's how I view writing. I put a lot of words on the paper, but they're not the right words. I'm cutting, I'm getting to the right word. And then when you get to the right word and, and I always read aloud part of my editing. So I, I'll go through carefully and edit for hours. And then when I'm done, I'll edit again by reading it aloud. And often I'll make significant changes again because it has to like read well and sound good and catch little things like onomatopoeias and things that you didn't intend that are suddenly there that you didn't notice or clunky or whatever. Um, but but when I'm done, it feels like I've created something that I'm proud of and I'm excited, you know, that, so no, I don't, to me, it's like, that's good. I'm glad I'm cutting not, and plus 115,000 word document is too long for a memoir. No one wants to read 115,000 words of pain. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it's too long for just about anything. That's not like um, a fantasy fiction, book. Yeah. I was say fantasy or chat science fiction gets away with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've seen recently in some of the self-publishing spheres, romance writers pushing books um, to 120, 150,000. Really? Which I get because they're in Kindle Unlimited. They get paid per page read. Mm. Why not write a story that just goes and goes and goes and goes? And if you've got the following, you know, that, I mean, that basically secures you yeah but a you, decent amount of money per book launch if you have enough of a following right right but here's the thing that kind of bothers me are you sacrificing the art form well i mean we're you're talking romance <laughs> i'm sorry and by the way i know i, I like romance i'm a, i've been a i know that you like romance I but like, you know how i feel about romance you said you, art form and i don't think art form and romance go together I, I know but i i'm <laughs> working on it i have a romance story i'm working on so so i'm saying this to myself but i i still think that good writing needs to be good writing and i I won't do that just for the sake of money. I won't. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if that's what they're doing. I just know that it is becoming interesting. Readers readers are becoming accustomed to big fat books. Yeah. And especially, you know, when they're reading online and writers are kind of I the problem I have really in take it out of Kindle Unlimited is you're getting a reader accustomed to getting a 150,000 word story for 3.99. Yeah, that's true. Have you thought have you ever seen the book called Worm? Mm-mm. I think it's a I think it's something like 900,000 words long. Oh, oh my it's, god. It's a, it, but it's 
it's free. You can get it out there free. So yeah, but now it's becoming, mm-hmm. they're now moving it into a, a paid version, but mm-hmm. I got a free copy of it back when he was like, it was like a serial that just kept kind of going and going and going. Oh. By the way, it's really well written. It is a very, it's a very powerful story. I do enjoy it. It's, it's about um, superpowers. And oh, cool. this girl's superpower is she's, she can control bugs. That's why it's called worm. That's a new one. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, you know. So anyway. That is, yeah, that is interesting. And and I do find that, like, um, I did a clubhouse with Monica Leonel where we talked about writing serialized fiction. Mm -hmm. The whole point of writing serialized fiction is to do a box set at the end. And some of those box sets are huge. Some people, um, like, uh, one of my favorites is Sarah um, K., it's either KL or LK Wilson. She writes Dragon School, which is like a YA serial. And there's like 20 in the first um, the first series um, that follows the one character. And she ended up putting her box sets into fives because you can't put, I mean, I don't even know if Amazon would let you put all 20 of those books in one box set. Right. Um, you know. Right. right. So That's interesting. So now what I'm working on is pricing. That's my bit yep. thing because I need to um, also then get the ISBN number because I plan to go wide. I don't plan to do just Kindle Unlimited. So, so today I was out pricing memoirs on Apple, and I think this is what my tentative idea is. I think I'm going to price the um, digital version eight ninety nine because remember Monica said you have to go a little higher when you don't go outside of a Kindle Unlimited when you go yep. wide. And then when you go wide, yeah. And I think I'll price the paperback. and then I will have a hardback cover as well. And I think that would be like $24.99. So that's my thoughts right now. But I also been looking into turning it into an audio book and doing research. And now you and I have talked about that. And I know you've advocated for me doing it at home. But did you realize that you have to put in six hours of editing for every one hour of reading? Well, yeah, I edit podcasts. I don't think that I don't think that's true, though. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I've, I'm, I'm going to price out a, a studio because I'm in Austin. It, okay. This is the big thing. Okay. Your memoir, correct me if I'm wrong, is not written like a, it's you telling your story, correct? Yes. And it, but it's told like a story, like reading a novel. Okay. I think, and this is kind of the gray area because yours is a memoir. It's not necessarily non I mean it is non-fiction but it's a little bit different but when somebody has a podcast they are accustomed to your voice and when you go to have this audiobook recorded if somebody is actually a fan of you listen to this podcast listens to girl get your shit together they know your voice right. they're going to expect you to be telling your story right. um working so- with uh Tammy LeBrack People expected her to do Newsletter Ninja and she didn't. And she gets so much. I answer her email. So I know how much email she gets about the fact that she didn't record her own audiobook. So here's the thing. I was thinking, I'm, I'm thinking about doing it myself, but hiring a mm-hmm. studio. Yeah. To go into a studio. So I don't have to create my own. First of all, I live in an apartment with concrete floors, concrete pillars, pillars and 17 feet high ceilings. A lot of echoing in here. I'd have to buy a little studio to sit in to do it. And then I'd have to edit the damn thing. And I just don't have the time or the energy to put that kind of time into it. So so you're thinking about hiring a studio to go in and record and do the edit for you? I would be there and do my own reading. 
and mm -hmm. then they would do they would so I would have to buy studio time for the reading and then I would pay them to do the mastering of it hmm. so and they do you can go out and bid for packages on it and yeah. there are studios here specifically that do voice audio mm -hmm. voice stuff work specifically plus like I said I'm in Austin which is city music city in the U.S. you know there's a lot of studios here a lot so mm -hmm. it would be easy. I think there's one just down the road for me, honestly. I definitely think that it's um, something to look into. I mean, and to be honest, if it reads more like a novel, that's why I say you're like in a gray area, because I feel like you could go either way. Right. I don't think anybody else could read my memoir because it doesn't read like a novel. It kind of reads like a collection of essays. Right. That would be like saying like... Um, what's the girl who wrote untamed yeah glennon doyle mm -hmm. she has a podcast everyone knows her voice right. like everyone's gonna expect her to read her own book right and and i've read it it is definitely a memoir it is not a collection of yes she tells stories but it's really more a point it's an essay with a story mine right. literally reads almost like a novel so that's the tricky part is is do i then do i have a male actor read the male parts or do I, you know, that's the stuff I got to think through and kind of consider maybe, yeah. even, maybe even do a dry run and do it a little bit of it, tape it and send it over, see what you think, see whether or not I need <laughs> to hire actors to do it. But yeah, I don't know. And Those are the things I'm still trying to figure out because it's, yeah. we're talking, we're talking a lot of money. This is going to be a lot of money. People do not understand. I mean, yes, you can write a book and put out it, put it out on Amazon and have no editor do your own cover, blah, blah, whatever. But if you're going to do this right and you're going to be successful, it's an investment. <laughs> it yeah, it is. I mean, I was adding it up today. I mean, I may be in the ballpark of five to $10,000. Now I could Crazy. split it with, uh, audio audiobooks has a program where you can belong and then you you hire them and you make a split with it but do i want to yeah acx does that ACX. so they take i think it's like i don't know what percentage of the royalties i would get out of it but if i do it this way and it does well then i make all the money right and i know that there are um you know voice actors that they weigh those options as well you know they weigh like do i want to pay out for doing the job or do i think that this book is gonna like hit big mm -hmm. because then they will want to adjust those in their contract as well so exactly good point yeah good point and it may even be worthwhile to see what the sales numbers are in the beginning to see whether or not it's lucrative then to approach someone afterwards i don't know i mean you put, yeah audiobooks are done after the book is done you have to wait sometimes i mean sometimes a lot of people now try to launch them all at the same okay. time okay yeah yeah. So I have time because my launch date is in November, but I'm, I'm, in fact, the other thing I started doing today is making a list of podcast people I want to approach to oh, get yeah. out and start pitching, you know, that fit the categories. So yeah, it's, I'm excited. It's fun. Like I said, I, I got two pre-sales, you know, so that's cool. Woohoo! Yeah. And one of them is not me yet. So I know exactly. <laughs> yeah. These um, are, so far, none of these are family, you know, these are, Hey, I know these are like so far two was from my email list and one's from a podcast that I was on. See, that's really awesome. Okay. So checking in on my writing a little bit. Um, I am, I'm gonna say since my goal is 80,000, maybe 90,000 words, I am about one fourth of the way done with my memoir. Awesome. <laughs> cool. That's wonderful. How's it feeling writing it? Um, like shit, honestly. <laughs> 
like we, I was editing this podcast from last week and listening to how I was talking about it. And, you know, it's, you know, Ashley messes up and then Ashley messes up again. And then, oh, look, Ashley still hasn't learned her lesson. Yeah, it's humbling. And that's why I wrote that post about, you know, writing 9,000 words and just how difficult it is to dig in, especially because mine centers around mostly my behavior in and when romantic relationships end. Mm. And I have, up until I have become a self-aware, emotionally stable adult, I was not an easy person to date. And so I'm writing stories and I'm like, oh my God, why? Why? I just, I'm so embarrassed by my own behavior, especially before when I was like, I didn't have a handle on my drinking. And so I would get upset and drink too much. And then like, we're talking just mess. Oh my God. Like I, you guys think I'm a mess now. (laughs) Just wait. (laughs) Read the book. You don't come across (laughs) like a mess. Seriously. You don't. (laughs) I was just listening to, you know, I love Brene Brown and I'm always listening Mm -hmm. to her, but I was listening to her interview with Ashley C. Ford about Ashley's new book, which is called somebody's daughter. And it's not, Mm -hmm. it's coming out, but boy, I I think I really want to get it. And one of the things that they talked about in that discussion was the power of this kind of observation, when you write something like this, it changes you. I mean, I know for me that when I wrote my memoir about my big fuck up of that marriage, that, that I, first of all, saw the deception, the things I'd never even realized, even at the end of the marriage, I didn't still know. I caught more lies. I caught more deception. I put things together. I mean, I, it was like, man, it was clarity I'd never had until I could see the words, the way it lays out in the words. And you know what it, people now, I mean, I've only been out of that relationship. The divorce was final of um, September, 2019. I'm not yet two years out, Mm -hmm. but yet people who meet me and hear me where I'm at, they're like, Oh, you've been divorced a long time. And it's because of writing this. I know it's because of writing this. So this is, I'm excited because I think that when you're done, you will know yourself so much better and you'll recognize what those triggers are. Now, do you do the same things today? No, but the triggers are the same. You have to mm-hmm. do, you're doing something different, but you still get stirred up. So now you'll understand what it is, why it is, and maybe some of them will heal. You know, wouldn't that be cool? I definitely, definitely think that this is like a very good healing process for me, for sure. Um, the chapter that I was working on yesterday, um, I was with somebody who didn't drink, didn't go out. And I went out to the bar and got really drunk and was, everybody else was there with their boyfriends, but my boyfriend didn't do that stuff. So he wasn't there. So my drunk ass went, knocked on his door thinking, well, I'm at least going to stay at your house tonight for him to then load me up in his truck and drive me home. Wow. Wow. And I can remember thinking like the whole night, like, I just wish, like, I wish my person was here. My person was not here. And then it turned into like, he's driving me home and I'm like, I wish my person wanted to like hang out with me. Right. And But you take a step back and you're like, wow, I was drunk and I was saying some really shitty things. And why would that person want to spend time with me when right, I'm drunk yes. and saying stuff like that? So it's just like this healing process. And the whole time I'm like, okay, that girl was like, I just want somebody to pick me. And this girl now is like, well, fuck, I pick myself. 
Like I always pick myself. You want me to pick you? No, I pick me. (laughs) So, you know, it's definitely, it's nice to see how much I've changed. Isn't it one, even the the observation you made that here you are feeling like you're isolated from him and you really want him to pick you. And yet you're self-fulfilling, you're making a self-fulfilling prophecy by self-sabotaging. You're pushing him away by the behavior so that you don't get the very thing that you're looking for. And it's that yeah. kind of stuff I think memoir writing allows us to do is it allows us to kind of look, take a close look at it. And you know, the other really cool thing is you're not alone. So you're speaking mm-hmm. to all the other girls who somehow think that it won't get better. There's no way out that There's something essentially different or wrong or whatever about them. So I, I'm excited that you're a quarter of the way through. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been really, really good. It's, it's been hard. It's hard. It's emotional. It's humbling. I feel like a shit show, or at least I was a shit show, but it is, it is very true. You know, I can, I've had so many conversations with women, um, you know, online through my blogs, um, friends in real life who are like, I just want to know that he wants to pick me so many times. So that like, I've seen my because I did it in that relationship and my friends be like I'm gonna break up with him to see him run after me like then he'll finally realize and he'll finally pick me and man not a single one of us like every one of those guys including the guy I was dating was like okay bye you know like you're not serious about this you don't want to be in this I respect that right and I'm just like (laughs) well that fucking backfired yeah no no, they don't do that. They won't play that game. Yes. No, yeah, because they want you to pick them too. Exactly. And so when you're doing that whole like, I don't think this is for me, you're kind of wavering, then they see that as like, okay, well, then that's it. Like she doesn't want to be with me. Right. Like if if there's any like thought about um what is it? If there's any question about whether or not you want to be with somebody, then you don't want to be with them. Right. Well, because you're really, you know, he could have been home that night sitting there thinking, I really wish my girlfriend would have wanted to hang out with me. Instead, she chose to go to the bar and left me back there alone. What about Yeah. But nobody, yeah. But, but yeah, this, know this girl didn't see that, you know? I, know. I would bet you $100. That is exactly what was going through his head. But my head was like, why the fuck? Like, and that's the thing. Some people, some people don't drink. Some people don't, you know, they don't go out. They don't do those things. And maybe that meant that we were like mismatched or whatever. But I learned a lot writing about that whole situation and just seeing because five years removed, right. like I can see both sides now. Right, right. Even yeah, the, when I couldn't in that situation. One of the things you're sharing in there is the, is the, the, the painfulness of transparency and vulnerability. And I, you know, when writing, all writing, by the way, I don't care what kind of writing it is, even fictional writing is still, there's a level of vulnerability and that's why not everybody does it. Cause it, it mm-hmm. you feel like yourself is on display. Even when you're hiding behind characters, you still feel like yourself is on display, but there's something extremely vulnerable when it's your story. And, yeah. and you do behavior that it's really easy for the outside world to say, shit, I wasn't done that. Yes, you do. You do it all the time. It's just easy on the outside to see that, not see it, but this is what I want to say. There's two things, and I love that you're doing. One is, I read this in a book um, called Your Life is Story. It says, write what you dare not say. So if it's terrifying you, then you're where you need to be, and you're saying the things you need to be saying. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Another th- a concept I heard that really helped me a lot was, 
the deeper you are, the more vulnerable it is, the more universal the truths are. Yeah, it will resonate with a broader audience because we all have these innate fears. So I'm excited that that's where you're at, because that means these things are happening. Yeah, it's 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 really exciting. Um, And it's, you know, it's a journey. It's a path. I also finally, finally, um, I finished the cover. I did the cover in like a day or something because I I make all of my own covers. And um, now having that and like just knowing like what the outside of the book is going to look like and kind of what the vibe that I'm going for is like it's 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 becoming exciting now. Mm-hmm. I got is it so, the last one you showed me? You sent yes. a series of them. Oh, yeah, I love it. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful. So I'm yeah. excited too. And I'm going to post it as soon as the pre-order is ready. I'm going to post it on um, Instagram. I'll post the cover on our Instagram for you guys. But um, the big thing right now is just figuring out a date for the pre-order and, you know, finding the right editor and those types of things. So now are you going to go wide on it? Are you going to go Kindle Unlimited? Uh, that's a good question. And I'm, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a conversation with Monica Leonel because she is like the queen of trying to figure out what you should go wide with, what you shouldn't have, because I've never gone wide. So, um, this might be the first time. And so, um, but I really want to kind of have a conversation with her and just see what her knowledge is about, um, self-published memoirs. Because there are not that many self-published memoirs. Interesting. So, so you and I are kind of paving some newer ground. Not we new. are pioneers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that's the other thing is I found it at Literary Attorney. And we can talk about more of that in another podcast because he's going to come on and let us interview him about risks involved with writing, especially with writing creative nonfiction, which is memoirs is the most risky literary uh, work to write when it comes to like. I like how you and I just kind of gravitated towards like what's a risky business when it comes to writing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Seems very us. I know, exactly. <laughs> bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> Matrix where he likes, you know, swings at the guy. Come on, bring it. Yeah, exactly. All righty. <laughs> All right. So in the last part of our podcast, we're going to dive into what makes realistic dialogue. So that's my question to you, Carrie. What do you think makes dialogue in writing feel realistic? Well, for me, I, I haven't done a lot of reading on this, so I don't know if you've studied it or not, but I have an advantage. And that is that I'm a psychologist with 20 years of experience in the office. So I've listened to lots of conversations, like lots and lots and lots of conversations with a whole variety of people across the big scope. Um, what, what strikes me as powerful dialogue is dialogue that one communicates something because you can write something that's just meaningless throwaway. You think about the number of words you and I say out loud and mm-hmm. how many of them nobody would want to read. <laughs> A majority of them, you know, what are you having for dinner? Uh, I want Chinese. I mean, I don't want to see that in a book. It's just not mm-hmm. an interesting conversation. Um, so it has to, it has to communicate something, but it also has to be communicated in a way that is, is feels realistic, feels like an actual, like we're listening in and eavesdropping to somebody. So a lot of people find that hard because the errors I've seen people make with dialogue is they use it as a way to drive the plot and they lose the, uh, the realisticness of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they would say, 
uh, general would say, hey, we need to go over there so we can take the fort because we need to like, they'd like give strategy, like say if it's a, like a war one, they'd give strategy instead of showing us the strategy. They would communicate in the dialogue. Well, no one wants to read that. And first of all, that's also not what a general would, or a colonel or whoever would say, sergeant would say. They don't talk like that. So that's, that's what I've noticed um, is that it needs to feel like authentic and it needs to fit, fit the character. So if you have a controlling, abusive person, they're not going to be all sensitive and asking about feelings. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have a kid, they're going to have to speak in a kid's lingo. They're not going to speak like an adult. So you have to kind of fit your, you have to know your character well enough to know, hear how they'd sound. So that's what I'm aware of. What do you, how about for you? What is, how do you know you're reading good dialogue? It's so funny because you just said one of my biggest pet peeves because this happens all the time, especially in like TVs and movies and books where somebody writes a kid like with an adult vocabulary mm -hmm. and, and and there's always something like special about this kid you know he's like super smart and which those kids exist but yeah. they're like almost like a trope for like right tv and books now is just like the kid who's like overly you know has a huge vocabulary and overly literate and all these things and I was like those kids are not as common as you think they are right 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 <laughs> Um, but for me, when it came to learning how to write realistic dialogue, um, I'm a person where I know it when I see it. So I know re realistic dialogue when I'm reading it and I can feel what it feels stilted and wrong. And I've kind of coached myself doing that, um, by watching TV shows, you can always tell when, um, dialogue is poorly written. And a lot of times I think it gets passed off as like bad acting, but it's really just the writing sucks. <laughs> I, I've seen that. I've watched TV shows and like, oh man, this is just painful. Like there's one right now that I, I actually like the plot. The plot's mm -hmm. fascinating. It's called Big Sky. I don't mm -hmm. know. I think ABCs are doing it, but the writing is rough. They're doing too yeah. much telling instead of showing. It's not how PIs would, would talk. It's also not how cops would handle a PI. I mean, it's just, yeah, and, and mm -hmm. it weakens the it weakens the show. I mean, like I said, it's a it's serial killers in Wyoming. That's interesting, and then they fuck it up with bad dialogue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, dialogue can literally when you're talking about you know movies and TV, of course, but also in literature, it can make or break a project for sure. Um, and you said, you know, making sure the dialogue fits the character. I feel like writers sometimes want their characters to be a little too yep. special. Yep. And so they give them all these, you know, different ticks and all these different things. And then a lot of times they'll lose consistency throughout of different accents or the way they say certain words. And it's just really difficult. I feel like writers spend a lot of time trying to make every single character very, very different from every single character and doesn't really understand that that's not really how the world works. Like I live in a town where literally every dude is like the same person. Right, right, right. Yeah. They all talk the same. Right. They all look the same. Yeah. All wear the same clothes. So, you know, to me, I feel like um, it's, you have to find the fine line between stands out and is interesting right. and is not, um, I don't know too precious, I guess. Right. You know, what's fortunate for me is that I'm, because it's a memoir, it's from real conversations that actually have happened. 
actually what I've done is because the person that I'm writing about um, has a unique way of handling English because English is not his first language. Mm-hmm. I actually am not writing the way he would speak because I don't dare do that. Plus who wants to read that? It's too broken, but, um, but. And who but, wants to get sued? Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> he did have, he did have some interesting tics and, mm-hmm. and I don't like, one of them was he likes to use people's names and he had a nickname for me. So I know you haven't read it, but you'll quickly pick up what it is because I use it. And then it changes when we're not doing well, he uses my real name. And when we are doing well, he uses his pet name. So that's one of the things that I do in this story. And he also loves to ask questions. He was an abusive person. So he had a way of always keeping control. So you can feel that when you read the writing, you'll see the gaslighting, you'll see the the way he manages control. Um, But you know what, I don't, it's all, it has to be real subtle. It has to be like natural conversations that happen. Um, Like there's a scene in there where I'm being punished. I've turned him down on something. So he decides he's gonna go on our honeymoon he decides he's going to go see a show alone. So he mm. drops me off after dinner and says, Hey, I'll be back. I'm going to a show. You don't want to go anyway. And then he leaves. So you have to play it out. Like it yeah. actually happened, you know, you don't want to, it, so it's those it's like, does, does that work? Is that what people would say? So that's what I asked myself. I, I read it aloud to me. That's a really great way to catch it is if you read and like, okay, would I hear this? Is this what someone would say? Um, yeah, that's that's one way to do it. And then there's also, especially with memoirs, there's interior dialogue. So there's us talking to ourselves, mm-hmm. and um, we don't often we don't see, you don't see that in third person, for example, because the narrator's like God, and he's outside, and so just, unless he's omniscient and knows everybody's thoughts, then he can only can infer based on what he sees in behavior. So you can't assume and say things about people's interiority unless you're omniscient, but Um, but with this, you have your own interiority. So those, those dialogues have to act the same as a dialogue between people. It has to be what you would actually say to yourself. So that's the tricky part too, because I actually find that harder, to be honest with you. I have to work harder at those. Um, yeah, I, I write for the most part, um, when I'm writing fiction in third person limited, Mm -hmm and um which is like what harry potter's written in it's you know it's third person but you know without the omniscient um narrator and so i find that i have to kind of draw back because obviously i know everything that's going to happen and then um you made some really really good points about reading out loud um which is a huge thing i think every person should be reading their entire manuscript out loud as part of their editing process. And then like I submerge myself because I write young adult YA mm-hmm. um, fiction. And so I submerge myself when I'm watching TV and reading books in young adult while I'm writing young adult. Mm-hmm. So um, I try not to do like, if I'm working on a zombie book then I'll watch like a vampire series. I try not to cross because I don't want to pull right. from something else right, for right. my book. But um, for dialogue, especially now, because, oh my God, I'm 30 and half the things these people say on TikTok, I have to Google. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. right. I Googled up, like, I was pretty sure I knew, sorry, I keep putting my mic. I was pretty sure I knew what linked up meant on TikTok. No, I don't. Um, even, never I still Googled it. it. I was like a hookup. Oh, a linked up is a hookup? A okay. link up. Okay. He's my link up. <laughs> 
interesting. You know, yeah. but like, but like I, accountant, I had to Google what a, what a TikTok accountant was. Cause I was like, I know what an accountant is. We have life. one. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not the same thing. No. What is it on TikTok? Um, like a sex worker, a stripper, oh, okay. an OnlyFans girl. They're okay. an accountant. Okay. I thought you were going to say one thing. One thing people can do that would really be helpful is to hang out in environments where that group would be like, where they would be at and take notes. Like for example, uh, go to an arcade in a, in a mall. No, maybe these days there aren't many kids, but where would the kids be? Maybe it's at the Slurpee joint or, but to listen to the conversations and take notes on it. Well, yeah, but some of us don't leave our house that much or liked people or want to be a creepy 30 year old woman taking notes as yeah, the teenager. Or, yeah. So I just watched TV. 40 year old guy at the bench in the park. Don't do that. I'm not saying do that, but I do to the degree that you can be around that population. Like, you know, if you, for example, a lot of, a lot of people I know have kids in, in uh, little leagues or so, come mm-hmm. some kind of sporting thing and they're around the kids when yeah. they all are talking, I mean, you can note what the conversations are about. So that, oh. those things help a lot. Yeah, I um, I have a friend who he owns the ice cream shop here in town and the coffee shop, and he has tons of teenagers working. So if there's ever like a question, I will ask him because he hangs out with them all day mm-hmm. <laughs> and gets to hear all about their drama and all these things. So if I really have something that I'm just like, I don't know if that fits, right. then he's the person to run it past. So right. for sure. But um, yeah, it's, you know, spending time where these kids are helps too i mean a lot of these kids are on tiktok a lot of these kids are on tumblr um instagram like you can go and spend time there and see how they interact with each other and things like that too yeah reddit's another place twitch yep there snapchat if you watch some of the spotlight reels on it yeah yeah exactly Mm -hmm. i think the other thing i wanted i just caught margaret atwood on masterclass Mm-hmm. talking specifically about dialogue and interior exterior dialogue and she had some excellent points so that'd be another place to go to to look at um how she does it i, I love listening to her it's amazing i mean i so admire her. she's the for those who don't know who she is she's the author of handmaid's tale mm-hmm. so. yeah and i think your biggest to me, your biggest asset is going to be to know your character as well. Um, if you're not somebody who outlines creating a character profile, um, because there's a lot that goes into your character. Like, okay, I live in the Midwest. I don't believe that I have an accent. I have been raised to believe that I do not have an accent. You go just a couple states south to Arkansas. They think I have an accent and those motherfuckers have an accent. You know what I mean? It's like something like that. <laughs> so know. like understanding where your character is from, right. if they grew up in a religious background, because religion um, will alter our vocabulary and the exactly. words that we choose. Right. Um, and, you know, knowing as much as you can about your character um, will help you choose the right kind of dialogue. Cause right. like, yeah. So my mom was raised in like a really religious house. I was raised in a really religious house, but we're obviously two separate people. So when my mom was my age, she wouldn't, wouldn't cuss or anything like that, but I have more of a rebellious streak. So I started swearing like as soon as I could get away with it. Right. So knowing that about your character, it really, you know, tells you which direction to go. I think an excellent example of incredible dialogue is ready player one. Oh, I love that. Because two, two, two big challenges that book takes on. 
One is it's placed in a dystopian world that's primarily tech. So you have to be solid in the tech. So it has its own lingo, but he doesn't overuse it. It's just, just the right amount. So it feels believable. And he then has them all like jacked up on this 1980s hunt. So he yes. has to know the 1980s era and what the words would be or the, you know, the icons and all that kind of stuff. I, I think it does this really beautiful job of sitting between both of those big challenging requirements. And he does it great. Yeah. And that's another thing too, is understanding your genre and knowing what research comes within your genre. Um, police procedurals, stuff like that. Like you have to know that lingo and you have to understand it because they're going to tell you, yeah. your readers are going to tell you what you are doing wrong exactly. or what you're using wrong. Um, that's another thing about like, um, if, you know, in the future I started writing YA exclusively or, you know, more often to where I could afford it, I would pass my book to a teenager. Yeah. Honestly, I really would, because that's what makes it believable. I can't tell you how many YA books I've read. And I'm like, so many things from dialogue to like, no mom is going to let their kid go do that. You know what I mean? It's things like that where it's like, that's not realistic. So being able to um, be in touch with people um, who will help with your genre in those ways is really important too, exactly. especially for dialogue. Exactly. I was thinking of like a medical thriller, like we take Grey's Anatomy. You have to mm -hmm. really know the terminology, what could be said in the OR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and they hire, they hire specialists. That yeah. Have you taken Shonda Rhimes's um, masterclass? No, she has one. I know she has it, but I have, I have that whole series of, so by the way, girl. It's my favorite. I own it. I've gone through that course probably three times, but when they write a script, they literally write medical, 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 mm. because they know that they do not have the expertise to handle those situations, to write the dialogue for that. So they just skip it. And I was like, I want to write for that TV show. Can somebody just put me on a TV show, please? That's but amazing. no, that's amazing. One of the things that I've been doing in this book is placed in Mexico and then the romance is placed in Mexico is that mm -hmm. because I was embedded in a Mexican family, I tend to know a little bit more what I'm, I don't know perfectly, but I have mm -hmm. a greater sense of what an expat who's not been embedded would know about the culture versus what they what I would know about the culture. But yeah, it would be dangerous to go out there and then make these assumptions, American assumptions, when that's not how things are run down there or how they think or how life moves down there. So you have, and I lived there for a couple of years. So it takes that kind of exposure to be able to do it well or to know someone who knows it and can do it. And you and I, for example, I have a, you and I have a friend that could act as a cultural interpreter. I say, mm -hmm. is this realistic? No, it's not how we do things, you know? I have people like that in my back pocket all the time. Um, you know, like a, a friend of the podcast, Zeta Kent, like she um, is really into LGBTQ plus rights right. and all these things. And I ha um, will pass phrases past her and just, just, right. to, just to, for clarity and to just exactly. make sure that, and I'm a queer person and I'm still, you know, want to make sure that what I'm writing is relatable and done well. Right. Um, I was thinking, as you were saying that about the whole thing about being in Mexico, like there are a lot of times where I, um, have conversations about I have a romance outlined and I wrote a romance before and I um interviewed and talked to shut up stop laughing um so the rest of the story comes out so um uh I wanted to write a story about a single mom 
um, in a small town. Um, but her kids were neurotypical. I don't have a neurotypical child. I have two neurodivergent children. Households with neurotypical children run differently. And so just getting like, how would you handle this? Because how one of them would handle potty training is completely different from how I would handle yeah, yeah. it. I have, I have no idea. None of my kids are neurotypical either. I have yeah. no idea what that would look like. Not my so reality. Just, so just reaching out or like, you know, how does the dynamic work in a, in a family of four where both the parents are there? Cause I don't know, I wasn't raised in one and I don't have one. Right. So it's really just like super simple things that you might think like, Oh, I've seen enough full house. I know how that would work or whatever to be a yeah. single parent. Remember full house is fantasy. It's not real. Yeah. Like it's, it's different from being in reality. And if you want your story to resonate with readers, even if it's fiction, it still has to have a sense of reality. Like ready player one is based in um, a dystopian game yep. and a world where basically our earth is screwed right. and so neither one of those exist but there is a reality of it which is kids that are outcasts find their friends online exactly they you know they get their adventures and their thrills through video games right. Right. um and then they don't feel like outcasts anymore that's based in reality yeah, exactly. so yeah. So yeah. he did that. Well, he did that. He, he, that is what it looks like. And he had to have had studied that to know what that would be like in addition to knowing what the 1980s uh, culture was like. So he, yeah, that's a great example in my opinion of solid, solid dialogue. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes you don't have to research it. Like um, when you watch stranger things mm -hmm. written, um, I think it's by the Duffy brothers. Um, you get a very sense of like, what it was like to grow up in the 80s, mm -hmm. um, which I believe they did, what it was like to be kind of like a nerdy outcast kid, which I believe they claim to be. So they're writing from their own experiences. Right. So they didn't have to research it a lot. Um, but if you don't have that experience, then right. you need to be well-versed in it enough to make it believable. Exactly. So I would love if any of the listeners have a comment or thoughts or what their favorite technique is, I'd love them to share it with us. That would be great to hear about that. Or maybe we missed something or maybe they disagree with something we said, but I would love to hear what people think about this. Yes. And so I know there's a bunch of links down in our show notes, but I'm going to tell you right now, you should be following the How to Publish Your Book podcast on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And we would love you to come along and start a conversation with us. We also have completely opened our Discord to all people for free. And so if you'd like to come in there and have a chit chat, that would be great. We'd love to see you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'd love to see some new faces on the website. I have included a link that's a, a open-ended unlimited link. So if you run into trouble trying to join discord, just let us know and we'll help you get in. Yeah, definitely. And also don't forget the spots are going fast for our writers retreat in February. So if that's something that you're interested in, um, the link is down below and um, don't hesitate any longer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, this is fun. I can't wait to talk more about the next, although next week will be about branding or platform, but. Uh, yeah, it's good. I'm, this was a really good chat, especially since we're both working on dialogue within our memoirs, so. Exactly, exactly. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the How to Publish Your Book podcast, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.